Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Thea Linarduzzi, an editor at the TLS, and Lucy Dallas, our arts editor, is here with me too. Hello, Lucy. How are you? I'm fine, Thea. How are you? I'm well, thank you. I'm okay. Um, I was struck flicking through the paper this week by the headline of one of your arts pieces, Lucy, um, and it goes, Wrong-footed by events, Shakespeare's lovely bully in the unpredictable present. Um, Do you want to tell us a bit about that one? Yes, it's really interesting, actually. So it's Professor Emma Smith, who I think we, we've talked to on the podcast before. We have. Uh, she's she's always brilliant. Yeah, yeah. And she's got done this terrific review of a new production of Henry V at the Donmar Warehouse with Kit Harrington, or for Game of Thrones fans, Jon Snow, I think. I think he is. I'm, right. I'm taking this as red because I haven't seen it. No, um, me neither. He, he's Henry V. And... It's wrong-footed by events. First of all, if you're a proper Shakespearean, you will know that Henry V, the play itself, was slightly wrong-footed by events. It's something to do with the Earl of Essex. I'm not really, you know, competent to go into those matters. Well, that's why we get Emma Smith to, uh, exactly. <laughs> to write exactly. the review. <laughs> um, but this production, uh, she said, was conceived. Uh, I think it was, it was uh, you know, it's been in, uh, in, the, in the works for a while. And is conceived as, uh, I think, a kind of uh, um, a meditation on patriotism in terms of sort of little Englandism um, and thinking about things like Brexit and Extinction Rebellion and the EU and, you know, that kind of thing. And what does patriotism mean? The St. George's flags, all of that sort of thing. Um, but it's the press night was had been put off, I think, by the pandemic, but also uh, this time had been put off by COVID as well. Um and so it's obviously, it's quite a military-themed production. I mean, Henry V is anyway, but this one is particularly, there's a lot of people in military dress and, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and by the time they opened, um, there was, uh, you know, uh, Russia had invaded Ukraine. So suddenly, if you're doing a production about war and military dress and all that kind of thing, it seems to mean something completely different. Mm. Mm. And patriotism 
do you know what I mean? Nobody's thinking about patriotism in terms of Brexit or anything anymore. The focus has completely changed and everybody's, the the, the, the context in which this is being presented has completely changed, mm. which of course they couldn't possibly have known. Um, but no, but very... I mean, that must make it very, very hard to make sure that you, or, you know, to attempt to, to, to strike the notes that you had wanted to. Um, Emma Smith says, suddenly patriotism was all the rage resonating less with a little Englandism of Brexit and more with the national pride and urban guerrilla mobilisation of, of Ukraine. And, and for there to be such a, a change of mood, it must yeah. feel to the people who are putting on the production a bit like the, the you know, the carpet has been pulled out from from underneath them. Yeah, I think it has. And it, and it's also, I mean, the play itself has got a lot of change of changes of mood. Sometimes it's kind of rather gung-ho and sometimes it's it's the pity of war. But in general, it's a bit more gung-ho than the other, which is a very uncomfortable note to strike at the moment. Um, and it's just, it's fascinating um, how the context can change. I mean, the point is this has been, you know, going on. Mm-hmm. Um, this has been going on for hundreds of years with Shakespeare, but it's, it's, um, it's fascinating how the context can change the resonances and how people think about things. So mm, mm, very much worth um, a read. Yeah. And I mean, the war in Ukraine's had a similar sharpening effect on, on um, the books reviewed by Eric Rouchway this week as well. Um, he reviews uh, three books, um, Butler to the World, How Britain Became the Servant of Tycoons, Tax Dodgers, Kleptocrats and Criminals um, by Oliver Bollow. Um, American Kleptocracy, which is uh, by Casey uh, Michelle and that the subtitle of that one is how the US created the greatest money laundering scheme in history uh, and finally uncommon wealth Britain and the aftermath of empire by Kojo Karam and these you know these are books about how the cost of allowing uh, ill-gotten or, or dirty money to circulate in the heart of our economies is is well is staggering and is is difficult to to deny in all sorts of ways you know um, mm. Routway makes a vivid analogy at the start doesn't he Yes, it's, he compares it to the the pirates, isn't it? And there's an area where the pirates uh, are basically not outlawed, so they continue to, frankly, do whatever they want. And the, the, I, the interesting thing about his thrust of the point is that the, the 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 thinking was that the sort of respectable rest of the world will influence the unrespectable shady corners, and it will all become uh, above board but in fact he says the opposite is what happens in fact the piracy then goes back to the heart of the metropolis because it's allowed to allowed to operate and thrive um and again you're right the context of that has changed pretty quickly in the past few weeks isn't it mm-hmm. and i mean the pirate uh problem of, of the 16 uh, the 1600s that the there was the refrain was sort of established then which is stopping dirty money would destroy the economy uh and this would be a conundrum all too familiar to Italians of course that if we don't do it someone else um will you know can you can you can can an economy can a can a country bear to cut something that is really profitable so so profitable uh but ill-gotten out of its its runnings um I mean, you think that could go for stamping out the corruption too, you know, if we don't stop it, someone else will. And, you know, which which side would you rather be on? Well, yeah, except it turns out it's all been going on for rather a long time. Yeah, <laughs> so, <laughs> we've still not sorted it not, out. Not as easy as that, yeah. Well, look, as, as Rouchway points out at the end of the piece then, um, perhaps the revelation of corruption's reach in the UK 
and US will bring public opinion to bear on what happens next. And that is, after all, what happened to the pirates who once plagued the Caribbean. The publication of Charles Johnson's General History of the Pirates in 1724 helped to popularise the idea that piracy ought to be stamped out and pirates hanged. For something similar to happen today would require a revival of sovereignty coupled with international cooperation, such as has not yet been seen this century, or, he says, perhaps had not been seen until the moment one of these latter-day pirates invaded a nation bordering NATO. Quite a way on which to end end the piece, I think. Um, you'll find these pieces and plenty more in this week's issue of the TLS, of course, in print and online. But now, coming up on this week's show... A work of non-fiction by the novelist Amitav Ghosh, The Nutmeg's Curse, Parables for a Planet in Crisis, paints a compelling picture of how the spice trade prefigured today's environmental crisis. But first, Margaret Atwood has secured for herself a place that few writers could conceive of. Her work is so well known that even those who haven't read a word of it will have breathed it in in one way or another, whether because the themes and ideas have so thoroughly suffused the public consciousness, think of the protesters for reproductive rights who dress in blood-red hooded robes like Atwood's handmaids, or because they've caught up through some other form, such as the many film and TV adaptations of Atwood's work. As our writer Mary Norris puts it this week, in a review of a collection of Atwood's non-fiction, burning questions, essays and occasional pieces, the novels and short stories, like Allen Ginsberg's poetry, have become part of the atmosphere, cultural fallout. To achieve such a status, to be as prolific and successful as Atwood is, surely requires a method. Or does it? Mary Norris joins us now to tell us more. Hello, Mary, and thank you for joining us. Hello. Well, it's a pleasure to join you. So what do we learn then from these uh, essays and occasional pieces um, about Atwood's method? Well, I noticed right away, and I think anybody who opens the book will notice that many of the essays have a similar beginning Margaret Atwood has been in great demand at various conferences and um, things like that on all different kinds of topics from pen conferences to conferences for uh, people who are preserving the woods, right? So she often begins an essay. It's a talk. And she, she begins with addressing the people who are in the room there, in the audience. So She'll say, for instance, I think I have some examples in the piece, you know, greetings. It is a pleasure to be here with you on the occasion of, um, and then she'll mention the person who is, um, who is being honored by this talk, uh, Belle Van Zylen or somebody that we perhaps don't know who is. And she might go on for a little bit to say that she knows who this person is and try to make a connection with her. But then she'll say, and now I'm going to do this. I'm going to talk about this, this, and this in this order. And she does this so often that I recognized the writing instruction that we're often given as um, young people in composition classes tell them what you're going to say, say it, and then tell them what you've said. (laughs) She is just a master of that and makes it look like very good advice, I have to say. Mm. And you you give a a wonderful image of her um, in action, saying that she narrates her work like a dressmaker with pins in her mouth, chatting while she does a fitting. 
Yes, it's kind of chatty and casual, but she knows just exactly what she's doing, you know. Um, and I, I began to notice, because I've been in one of her audiences, I've been in her audience a couple of times, in fact, and she's very warm. She engenders a lot of warmth among the audience. And I think that one of the ways she carries that over into the printed talks is by invoking the audience that she was speaking directly to. Mm. You know, it's a direct connection Mm. with the reader. And as you say, I mean, the way she starts these talks, you know, always situating them and acknowledging the person who is who has invited her to to speak on such and such a thing. It, it's another way of, of of saying, you know, she writes on commission. That is to say she is uh, a consummate professional. She writes because she has been asked to write on the subject she has been asked to write on. There's no um, deep mystery here of, of creation, you know, no myth making about the writer's life. <laughs> well, I guess not. Um when I was thinking about it and writing about it, of course, I, I got self-conscious and I realized that I'd been commissioned to write this piece. You know? So that's kind of the way I built the piece was with that in mind that I was imitating mm. Margaret Atwood in a way while I was writing it. Um, and it's also fair to say, I think, that we don't, we don't really come to Atwood for the nonfiction. You know, so these essays and, and lectures and, and, and shorts and uh, and so on. They're mostly valuable, I suppose, because they they return us to the fiction. Is that right? You know, I did. I have not read a lot of Margaret Atwood, her fiction, that is, because I'm not generally attracted to utopian, dystopian fiction. I don't like dystopian fiction at all. Um, I really don't like dystopian reality, though. <laughs> no, welcome. <laughs> we have to admit that, yeah. that seems to be a fact these days. The essays make it clear what a wonderful writer she is when she is on commission, you know, when she's been paid to do something. And when she is just making something up, when she's writing fiction, that is multiplied. The attraction is really multiplied. The Reading the essays did make me want to go back and read the fiction. Mm, and so, I mean, you, you, you've you described her um, in your piece as the queen of speculative fiction, which isn't a label that will surprise anyone because I suppose anyone who's followed her over the years knows how strongly she feels about this label. Um, you know, th- this collection for, for anyone who might have forgotten the precise details of the fiction offers plenty of evidence for her being uh, precisely that, the queen of speculative fiction. The reason is, is that she she wants to draw a distinction between um, things that have already begun to exist, things that are already possible that we already hold in our hands um, and those which are pure works of, of, of imagination. So speculative fiction, you're dealing with things that are already in the realms of, of, of reality, of possibility. That's right, isn't it, Lucy? I, I expect this is very much your terrain. Well, I wish I could sound expert on it, but that sounds absolutely like... Um what I've heard her say about The Handmaid's Tale, certainly because she said that she didn't invent any of the things in it. They were all things that had happened at some point somewhere. Mm. It's just that she she might amplify them or, you know, change them somehow or enlarge them. Um, but yes, I think in science fiction, you can, I mean, there's people do it much, much less nowadays, but you can just say, and then they got in the, uh, what's the, a generic word for the machine? It's something like the Zograffire, you know, and then they got in the Zograffire and it's, yeah and it transmogrified them. So that's not what she does. <laughs> no, no, no. I suppose a shiny, there's a shiny example of that in um, 
Oryx and Crake. Um, so I read that when it came out, which was 2003, and my memory of it was a little bit hazy. So I kind of reminded myself um, of it this weekend, and I'd forgotten quite how prescient it was. Um, it's kind of remarkable the stuff that she that she captures there. There's you know multiplayer games. Uh, one there's one called Extinctathon, porn saturation, bioengineering, pandemics, population politics, the state of universities and humanities and teaching in particular and Mary does she reflect on the life that her her fiction has taken on this kind of the the life the life of its own that it's taken on and, and what it what it's been able to tell us about the world in which we live she certainly does and those are some of the best essays in this collection I think she has one on the writing of the testaments one on the writing of The Handmaid's Tale. And there's often, there's background on um, the one you just mentioned. And I love that stuff. I love reading about what inspired her to write the, write these things and how long it took. And then, you know, the, the, the fact that the reality has caught up to them is quite terrifying. Um, I think that Margaret Atwood is an inveterate reader of pieces on science, popular science in the, the things that make it into the newspaper. And I think she also may read some professional journals because she's been onto things a lot sooner than the general public has, you know, this uh, mm-hmm. idea of raising little piggies in order to give them organs that will match the humans. It's just this, this is, um, of course, human life is, Precious um, and good for those people who have pig livers and kidneys and things. But I always think about the animals themselves. And I think Margaret Atwood does too. The little farms where they're making, or laboratories, I guess they are, where they're raising sacrificial pigs. You know, I think it's so sad. Mm. She's clearly a, a very sensitive, a very sensitive being, I suppose, a part of a part of the world in which she lives. She She observes and she, she sometimes amplifies uh, or often amplifies, uh, as, as we said, things that are already within the bounds of, of possibility. Um, the Handmaid's Tale is probably the most famous example of that. Um, you, you make the very bold confession, I, I think, um, that you haven't read it and, and it, you seem to have, you, you don't have any desire to, do you? Because presumably you feel you know it so, so well so intimately already because it has been so absorbed into the culture. Yes, um, I think now I might read it just to see how she does it. You know, it's, it's a story that, of course, gives everyone the chills, or at least it gives women the chills. And, and I now have seen a movie version of it, so I know how it ends, <laughs> how it begins. <laughs> but I would actually like to, to look at the prose, I confess. I would like to look back at that, see how she did it, mm. you know? Mm. You, you point out that, um, and I had no idea about this, and it's really interesting, it's made me want to go and uh, find it, but that it was reviewed in, in when it came out in 1985 in the New York Times by Mary McCarthy. Right. Oh, that could have been such a career boost, right? Alas. Um, <laughs> and But she panned it. She didn't like it. Yeah. And then it turned out that um, Matt would found out years and years later that the person who had assigned the book to Mary McCarthy did not know that Mary McCarthy had recently had a stroke. So the review was a bit incoherent is the word that she uses. But it was also it must have been shattering. You know, this 
mm. like a breakthrough book. But the Times makes mistakes. Um, reviewers have their limitations, right? President company accepted, of course. Well, of course. And and at least, you know, at least Margaret Atwood would be able to say, well, you know, um, poor Mary McCarthy wasn't very well at the time. Well, so. yeah, that was nice. <laughs> so perhaps she doesn't have to <laughs> take it too too much to heart. Right, and she didn't make the point that Mary McCarthy should only have lived to see what happened with this failure of a novel. Well, exactly. Who? I mean, no, nobody could have imagined that. I mean, the 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 magnitude of, of of success of this of this novel and then as you, you mentioned earlier uh, the testaments the um the follow-up book so what are Atwood's own thoughts on 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 this novel and it's 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 you know it's evolution and and, and afterlife and continuing uh continuing life I mean it, it must be strange to have one's work become so much a part of the atmosphere as you put it so you know so that people will refer to it without even knowing the work itself she doesn't seem like the sort of person who'd let that get to her head no she's I think she seems very level-headed maybe it's being from Canada maybe it's having really worked hard for many 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 years that she knows that's what she has to keep doing is keep working and she obviously keeps abreast of all the developments and likes to see what they're doing with her work and I hope she's as in I hope she put in a swimming pool (laughs) or bought a nice big house and restored it or or something. But because she, you know, it always amazes me that once a writer has achieved that kind of renown and, and had movies made of her books and probably is financially set and doesn't have to write anymore to make a living, that she still writes. She still writes all the time. I think that's so admirable. And I suppose you would hope as well that because, you know, because she's written about how writers need to look after their backs. I hope she has put in a swimming pool. Right. <laughs> I've been onto that for a while. I do my back exercises as soon as I get up in the morning. It's very good practical <laughs> advice from Margaret Atwood. It's also, I think, I think it's interesting, isn't it, that she is, as you say, there's not many writers who reach that level of recognition. And um, there's probably not that many older women who any who are listened to with that amount of mm. attention. So I think it's, um, thank goodness she is writing and, you know, reading everything and having opinions and giving talks and all of that, because um, she doesn't have to, as you say, Mary, no. does she? She could just, she could just go and, 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 and swim in her pool. Uh, but I think, uh, I think it's, a, I think it's very good that she does because she's pretty fearless, isn't she? Yes, maybe that also is something that comes with age. She seems to me completely fearless. Um, I right after I turned my review in, I discovered that the Times of New York had printed a review and and um, citing some of the same very same sentences I cited. Their reviewer gave it a pan. I don't know why they seem to like that, but. Um, it's not going to hurt her, you know. She's mm. she's bigger than that critic, which is fabulous. I think. Yeah, fabulous. I've seen her. Um, I've seen her talk a number of times, and she seems to. I mean, this people say this sort of thing all the time, but in her case, it's true. She really does seem to cast a spell over people. Um, huh. She she you know she sniffs, and the whole room is just you could hear a pinfall. <laughs> I think if if we were at a different age, she would be burned as a witch, you know. <laughs> 
Precisely because of that fearlessness. Yeah. I'm sure that's true. That doesn't sound like a compliment, yeah. but I, I, I absolutely <laughs> yeah. take it that it is. <laughs> it, it's meant as a compliment, right? <laughs> um, so tell us, Mary, about your own first time reading Atwood. Um, because, you, I mean, you, can, can, you, can you recall those, those first impressions? Well, yes. I read um, years ago on the copy desk at The New Yorker. I was given a short story by her to copy edit. It was called Stone Mattress. Mm-hmm. And I was delighted to come upon the origins of that story in a very short essay in Burning Questions. It was um, you know, not, not speculative fiction. It was a good old-fashioned murder mystery. Uh, just a short piece and about a woman who, uh, you know, I call her a serial widow, like the Black Widow, who is on a cruise in uh, the Arctic and learns about these things, stromatolites, which are this formation of like pillowy looking stone. And it occurs, it occurred to Margaret Atwood, I discovered in the book that in the in burning questions in her essay that it occurred to her right away that one of those would make a wonderful murder weapon and so she and her husband developed a story where the a widow would get away with murder on a cruise ship where she you know leaves somebody behind um who's been bashed over the head i think <laughs> anyway it sounds almost agatha christie like yeah, well <laughs> reading this what i saw in this story very short piece um what a good storyteller she is how she just works it all out and you know i was quite enthralled with this story and it did convert me there are so many things to read though and she herself has produced so much and what, one of one of the things that comes across in that story, I remember reading it again when it when it came out. Um, uh-huh. And it, it's the wickedness, isn't it? There's a there's a there's a wickedness, a kind of glinting eyed wickedness. Yes, mischief. Yes, yes. That is that is one of the delights of her. I think it's just so. Um, what's the word? It's kind of catching something Absolutely. contagious about the prose that it does draw you in, and mm. you're in the writer's world. So what writers and works by others feature here? She writes about her own work, but she also nods to or, or, or you know, engages deeply with, um, with some of the people who have influenced her, I think. Well, one thing that she has been doing for years, um, I went out and got another uh, book of hers, I confess. I went out and got another book of her nonfiction because this is the third collection big collection of nonfiction by her. And I wondered what else she'd written about. So I got hold of Second Words, which is her critical prose from 1960 to 1982. And you can see between 1982 and 2004, there was probably another book in there. But she has been a wonderful promoter of her fellow Canadians. She sees it as, I think, her mission to make Canada and writers from Canada more visible. So a lot of the writers that she writes about are her fellow Canadians. She has a wonderful piece in Burning Questions on Alice Munro. And, you know, it's very, I think it's very generous of her because, you know, maybe I, well, I am small-minded and catty and 
provincial and <laughs> things. So I would have been jealous. I would have been very envious of Alice Monroe if I were the other Canadian woman writer, you know, the one who didn't win the Nobel. She's won so many other things. But her essay on Alice Monroe is just full of sisterhood and pride and generosity. And it's really wonderful. Mm. The collection spans, uh, as you said, 2004 to 2021, which is it was quite a chunk of time. And it's also, you know, in that time, she became famous in a way that such a small number of, of writers, especially living writers, um, does. Has that changed anything, do you think, in, in her tone and the way that she uh, talks about the work or, or conceives of it or, or thinks about her role as a writer? Well, I don't think so. I think this habit she had of writing, um, of responding to commissions from early on, you know, just to make the money, that is something that I think has stuck with her and that she does very much the same way. And I think she still lends a hand to other writers She's somebody who I think kind of tries to share the wealth in a way rather than, you know, lock herself up with her millions. Yeah, she has, she's on a level with Stephen King, right? Who is another of the writers that she writes about and Mm -hmm. whom she admires. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, she sounds like an all round good thing, (laughs) which we suspected, I think, before, before you reviewed this, uh, this, this, this collection for us but you, you've confirmed it to us now I think oh good um, <laughs> well, I came to it open-minded and um I was not disappointed you know I had had these few encounters with her in real life with and I count copy editing the story of the stone mattress <laughs> um and I was very impressed with the range that she has in the collection of essays, you know, that she'll, she seems like willing to tackle anything. Mm. And, and really willing to, to work as, as I think we've probably made clear, she's a real worker and you, and one of the, one of the earliest um, uh, encounters that you did have with her kind of, kind of gives us an image of, of that, doesn't it? Of her sitting at a table working waiting and working and hoping yes and just putting in the hours yes well you know I think I got the impression from some of these pieces when she's on her way to give a talk I did get the impression that she writes on airplanes (laughs) (laughs) I read somewhere that she carries two pencils um an extra one in case the point on the first one wears down or breaks and that she carries these pencils when she gets on an airplane and I could really see her scribbling on the Um, tabletop in her seat, deciding what she's going to tell these people when she gets there, you know, maybe getting, Mm. getting, in fact, the outline of it um, by Mm. being very direct, saying, this is what I'm going to talk about it, this thing, and then letting it come out. Can you just paint a picture for us then on just a a parting note there of the first time you saw her uh, in in the flesh? Um, It was in a department store. Oh, (laughs) That picture of her in the department store when she was selling her very first book was called The Edible Woman. Um, She described that at a a book sales conference in Albuquerque, where she was speaking at a breakfast meeting to authors and sellers of books, independent booksellers mostly. And she just described her first publicity stunt. I guess you would call it, which was selling books, signing books in the men's underwear department of a Canadian department store in 
in the West, I think, in Alberta. And um, she just sat there next next to the escalator at a little table while the men came in looking, shopping for socks and jockey shorts. <laughs> and the title, she said, scared them away, the title The Edible Woman. And um, she did sell two books. But how brave. <laughs> and at this conference, she was actually reminiscing with, I think, the person who either edited that first collection or who was her publicity person at the publisher who set that up for her, her very first professional appearance as a writer. So she had certainly come a long way. That's very forgiving to still share a stage with the person who made you sit in the men's underwear department with your book, <laughs> The Edible Woman, isn't it? I think mm. we can add forgiving to her list of virtues. <laughs> so in a way, I suppose she always feels like she's in that men's underwear department. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and I just think there's something so wonderful about now being able to picture her um, sitting in that men's underwear department by the escalator, waiting to sell those two books, and presumably at the end of the day, leaving feeling like she'd accomplished something. I hope she did. I'm sure she did. But to be able to picture that version of her alongside the one that we we now know she 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 is, where she can hush a room of thousands um, with a sneeze. Um, so Mary Norris, thanks very much for um, for bringing us Margaret Atwood then and Margaret Atwood now. Thanks for talking to us. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Still to come on the show, a journey to the so-called Spice Islands, about 2,500 miles and two time zones away from Jakarta, approaching Papua New Guinea, where in the shadow of a volcano, nutmeg trees once grew largely undisturbed by the rest of the world. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you will never miss an episode. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. 
That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome back to the TLS podcast. I'm Lucy Dallas. Now, if I were to ask what a nutmeg has to do with the climate, indeed with the whole planet, you would be forgiven for perhaps drawing a blank. But Amitav Ghosh has linked them inextricably in his book, The Nutmeg's Curse, Parables for a Planet in Crisis. Our reviewer, Professor Sujit Sivasundaram, calls the book urgent, beautiful and far-reaching and says... The nutmeg's curse shows how the story of this fruit can stand for the world we inhabit and the plight it faces. And we're delighted that Sujit Sivasundaram is here to talk us through this today. Sujit, many thanks for joining us. Thank you for the invitation. It's great to be with you. You begin your piece at the at the origin of all this by describing the fruit of the nutmeg tree, which we might think we're familiar with, but we're probably not, and telling us where the tree grows. Can you just walk us through those those basics, please? Sure. So uh, what's interesting about the the nutmeg uh, fruit is is that it's a a composite. So it's got this outer fruit, uh, which is uh, just inside the skin, which is green or yellow in color. And then the core, uh, which is webbed um, uh, and uh, an interior seed, which is the nutmeg. So in a sense, it's not a singular fruit. It's a composite. And that's why it's interesting in terms of theorizing the planetary crisis because arguably, even as we isolate it, it becomes many things uh, in turn. And um, yeah, the way Amitav uses it is that Amitav Ghosh, um, the novelist who um, has now written this book of nonfiction, uh, is as a symbol really for the whole planet. Um, and so one can immediately think of how the different elements of the nutmeg um, equate to the different hemispheres, to the atmosphere, to the earth, the different elements really of our planet. And so it becomes a symbol, but also an entry point uh, into the climate crisis uh, in this book, uh, The Nutmeg's Curse. Mm-hmm. And where is it that the tree grows and w- why did this lead to so many oh, yes. so many problems? <laughs> yeah, sure. So it's a horrific story, really, though it's such a beautiful fruit um, it grew um, only in the Bandar Islands, um, uh, the so-called Spice Islands, um, and the particular ecology of uh, one island was critical uh, to its growth. Um, and so there was a race in the early modern period to seize this island uh, amongst Europeans, uh, and it was finally the Dutch uh, who take control of the island, and a genocide uh, then unfolds. Uh, as they try to impose a a monopoly uh, over the production uh, of the nutmeg. And in place of the indigenous peoples who are horrifically displaced from their ancestral home, the Dutch then bring in uh, enslaved peoples uh, to cultivate uh, the nutmeg uh, in the Bandar Islands. So in some ways, really, um, yeah, it comes from a particular place, but it is also a particular story of settlement uh, colonization and genocide. Uh, which then leads into uh, its uh, its global travels uh, as a commodity and a precious commodity at that. It was highly valued uh, by early modern Europeans. Uh, it was often equated to gold and it was said to be more valuable than its weight in gold. 
how long did that part of the history um, go on for? I mean, you know, what happened to the trade in nutmeg uh, there after the Dutch had left was it was an earlier way of growing and working it re-established or, you know, is such a return impossible? Uh, yeah, so I mean, the first thing to say is, of course, that there is an earlier trade uh, in the nutmeg, which is Asian, uh, which is connected to the Arab trade and to South Asians as well. So uh, it's not the case that the Europeans can kind of create the trade uh, in the nutmeg. Rather, it's the way there's a sort of transition from an Indian Ocean trading system, which is pre-existent, to um, a corporate monopoly through the Dutch East India Company, the VOC, uh, which is the sort of significant change in terms of, of trading practice. Um, and arguably Amitabh Ghosh's point more broadly about cultivation is that though Europeans impose plantation systems in various parts of the world, it isn't the case um, that these operate successfully without the help uh, of uh, local peoples, of indigenous peoples, of enslaved peoples. And so their knowledges are, are really critical uh, to the story as well. So really, um, maybe from both those angles in relation to what existed prior, uh, as also how the plantation system operates, it's not the case that Europeans uh, are able to do it uh, in their own terms or fully uh, through their own initiative. You say it's striking that the linking narrative, because the book begins, doesn't it, with the, with the Banda Islands and, and with with the with the awful um, horrific events that happen there. You say it's striking that this linking narrative takes place there rather than, let's say, in the Americas. Though uh, Gauche does also talk about the, the more familiar stories of the settlers in the U.S. as well and their destruction of the Native American people and environment. Why, why, why did you find this choice of the Bandar Islands so striking? Yeah, so I'm a historian of the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, and a lot of my, my work uh, is targeted towards uh, really taking stories that we know from the Atlantic context uh, and retelling them from the vantage point of the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean. And so this is especially striking with um, what we know about enslavement, that we often think uh, about the links between West Africa and the Caribbean uh, and Britain, and we should do, and we need to think even more and more about those links, but we forget uh, about the history of enslavement uh, in the Indian Ocean, we forget about the plantation complex uh, in the Indian Ocean. And one very significant argument in Amitabh Ghosh's book is that the Indian Ocean is really vital to consider for the future of our planet, because so many people live facing the Indian Ocean, um, so many fossil fuels today travel, as I think 70%, he says, uh, of the fossil fuels uh, that, uh, that are traded travel through Indian Ocean uh, trading routes. Uh, and this is a place where there are cities which are low-lying, um, and we could go on listing the reasons um, for why it's significant like this. It's right at the heart, really, of geopolitical challenges between India and China, might be another way. Uh, to argue for its centrality. So we really need to think through um, the roots of our present predicament in relation to the climate crisis, in relation to the legacies of empire, uh, in relation to how we think through race uh, and so forth via the Indian Ocean as well, not to displace the Atlantic story, but rather uh, to think with these sites um, as well. Mm -hmm. And it, I think, was it also because what he found was that the, the stories, well, all these stories of, of European settlement and displacement and destruction of, of people, they, they had a sort of similar mindset. And this new 
type of colonialism thought very differently about land and the environment, had a very different worldview uh, at odds with the indigenous people who actually lived on the lands that the settlers were taking over. And that was crucial, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So this is one of the key contributions of the book to um, really encourage us to think about storytelling and even singing about nature. Um, so if we think about indigenous cosmologies of nature, indigenous worldviews of nature, um, Amitabh Ghosh reminds us that, that they're vitalist and animated. Um, so whereas European colonization muted nature and muted indigenous peoples, indigenous perspectives um, were, were far more complicated. And so if we are to think our way through the climate crisis, we need to return to storytelling, we need to return to chance, we need to, to return to um, a more connected view of our relationship with nature. And so we need to return to the Bandar Islands amongst many other sites, including in the Atlantic, including in Mauritius, which he writes about as well, including um, in um, other island societies uh, in the global south, um, where this transformation of nature to um, muted plantations uh, was occurring with the rise of capitalist orders. Um, so I think, yeah, just the sort of point that storytelling um, and a reimagination of nature uh, is, is critical for us, because I guess sometimes with the debate about the climate emergency, we can be swallowed by facts and data and statistics. Um, and arguably, uh, this is a sort of invitation to do something different, to think with stories and to think through how indigenous storytelling um, can actually be so powerful as we face this future uh, ahead of us. So I suppose um, with with that sort of approach in mind, what can you tell us about the the tone of the work? I mean, I suppose it would be easy for a book so steeped in, as you say, in 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 in, in the history and politics and climate awareness to come across as either uh, dry or dense or doom laden. Um, but perhaps with this emphasis on storytelling, how does that allow Gauche to to pitch himself to to kind of to come to us. Well, it's I couldn't put this book down uh, to be honest with you. Um, it's beautifully written, and of course we know that the fiction that he writes is beautifully written. And um, he has successfully transitioned. He's I mean he's sort of moved his style from fiction to nonfiction, which is quite um, difficult. Um, and um, it could have gone wrong. Um, it's meditative. Um, so I guess the point here about the nutmeg. Uh, standing for the for the earth itself is that it moves from big to small um, so it moves from a particular island to a larger tale about genocide leading into um, into uh, ecocide and so forth so I guess it sort of jumps across scales well um, as a story um, it uh, moves across different crises the migrant crisis um, the crisis in relation to fuel um, and across periods as well. So I think, yeah, it's certainly well-written, um, but um, the strength lies in the way he, he moves between scales um, and how he uses uh, the symbolic power of uh, particular elements, natural elements like the nutmeg to stand for, uh, for larger stories. And that's in keeping really with indigenous cosmology itself and the way Indigenous peoples think about nature. So it's fitting in relation to the broader argument. He's telling stories as well, isn't he? He, tells, mm. he, he, he gives little vignettes about, um, about what's happening to him in the pandemic and what, what's happening to other people. And also he, he actually tells, he makes the story of the Banda Islands a narrative 
you know, it, 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 it becomes a story, doesn't it? It's not, he's not just, it's not just a sort of, these are the facts and this is what happens. He kind of speculates and digresses. It's very, it's very involving, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, that is the sort of other side of it, which we could critique uh, in the sense that maybe there are a lot of digressions. And so the jumps between uh, the climate crisis and the migrant crisis um, and between the early modern and the modern come quickly. But I think we do need works like this that experiment and that jump genres um, and that move across contexts rather than work simply on the plantation complex in the Indian Ocean or the migrant crisis in the Mediterranean. Because I think the fundamental logic is that there is a sort of hidden connection between all of this, which is the environment and um, is the silencing of another way of engaging with nature. Mm. He also, um, in fact, he borrows a term from science fiction, doesn't he? he talks about terraforming, which mm. uh, talks about terraforming, uh, uh, you know, uh, on Earth, which might initially seem a bit odd, but actually, it it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? Absolutely. So the management of landscapes uh, for plantations, and I suppose, so one aspect of this is certainly that the agency and continuing power of indigenous storytelling. Another aspect of this is the power of nature and the agency of nature. So the argument runs a bit like this, that there is all this terraforming, um, the building of infrastructure, the, the controlling uh, of um, nature um, through pro- programs of urbanization and so forth, um, as we know. Um, but in Amitabh Ghosh's view, the climate emergency now sees nature uh, shrugging terraforming off, as it were, or in a sense, escaping from the terraforming. So whereas humans have try to silence nature, to manipulate nature, to control nature through terraforming as well. Now we're at a point where actually nature's power uh, is manifest once again and human um, limitation um, is, is evident um, in, uh, in episodes of, of disaster and so forth uh, in our world. Um, and so it really is sort of insistence on uh, the power of nature as well as the power of indigenous peoples. Yeah, that it, it kind of works both ways, though, doesn't it? Because it's in the in the early modern times, it was it was you know when they were trying to get rid of all the nutmeg trees and all that. That was actually just very difficult for them because they had to contend with the realities of of the land they were on, which they didn't know very well. But the but but what's happening now um, it, it is it is precisely because um, that the, the, the humans have made such great incursions. Um, so it's very much. Um, it's because of that, as it were, that, that, that bit's not a natural process. No, yeah, I think it's a sort of arc, isn't it, that we've gone through these companies uh, that were at the, the heart of uh, early modern imperialism, the Dutch uh, East India Company, but also the English uh, East India Company. Um, and those uh, corporate entities have been tied up with you know, capitalist orders, uh, with global exchanges, the Bandar Islands being swapped for New York, for instance, uh, as I mentioned in the review uh, at one point. Um, and then into modes of standardization, which were central to the modern world, where cities are built on templates across the world or where um, agricultural knowledge uh, is shared. Um, and so now we're at the end of that arc, really, from um, early modern corporations via modern states um, and their management of nature and on to uh, the climate emergency. Mm-hmm. And in a funny sort of way, the the he talks in some detail it's very it's it's the the detail is horrible but you have to hear about it he talks about how the the settlers i'm thinking about more in the us now um about how they how they got rid of um 
uh, a lot the Native Americans. In a funny sort of way, their methods were aimed at the land and the animals. They were aware of them, weren't they? As, as well as the people. He, he makes the argument that it wasn't like war. It wasn't a war on those tribes because, because men and women and children and animals and the land itself were attacked on every front. They destroyed the buffalo that, 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 that they needed. They introduced smallpox. They flooded the land. And as I said, they even tried to... Didn't the Dutch try and get rid of all the nutmeg trees that went under their control? Absolutely. Yes, this was very much in keeping with the way the Dutch op- operated monopolies elsewhere. Uh, I've been interested in cinnamon uh, in Sri Lanka, for instance, where, again, they got rid of all the cinnamon trees which were not under their monopoly. And you're absolutely right. I think um, the, the, the phrase that comes to mind, which is under debate quite heavily uh, in the humanities at the moment, of racial capitalism, where humans are, are converted into stock, effectively, um, right next to animals, right next to land. Um, and so it's really the kind of complex of the human and the non-human, which has been managed by these capitalist orders, uh, which uh, is significant. And I would argue, and I have done this uh, elsewhere, is that the idea of race itself has, um, is fundamentally also about the distinction between the human and the animal, because as these Europeans arbitrating, you know, what is an animal and what is a human, um, they're also arbitrating the difference between different human orders or human beings, uh, as they see it. Um, and so it's important to kind of think about the environmental context to, to the idea of race and also how the management of humans and, and land and animals was all one part of the same program of racial capitalism. Mm-hmm. And uh, in an odd sort of way, the problem is, is or, or was in a way human exceptionalism. You say that, that the, 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 the thinking that, We've talked about it recently uh, on the podcast a bit, the idea that nature with a capital N is over there. Humanity is not part of it and it's a resource. So you you use it and nature includes, uh, you know, all plants, all animals, all of that. Um, you use it as a resource, whereas back to the vitalist view, which he talks about a more than human perspective, which he thinks is crucial to restore some balance. Yeah, absolutely. And what's out there includes um, non-white peoples as well as as, as um, yeah, yeah. land um, and nature. And that's all under capital N nature, by the way. Um, and so what we need is to undo the distinction there at the heart of racial capitalism um, so that we include a, a kind of distribution of agency right across that complex of human, non-human, um, uh, people of colour, colonised people, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then in turn actually sort of attend to the way knowledge works from a different perspective, which is outside that European order, uh, which is the indigenous order. So I guess to undo racial capitalism, one needs both those steps really of dismantling this divide of the human and the non-human, but also starting with indigenous perspectives in turn. And finally, do you think that's what it, it's a sort of call to do that, the book, or is it more just a laying out of this is how we got here? Does it have a... I don't want to say message, that makes it sound preachy. It's not preachy at all. Uh, but does it have a sort of call to arms, do you think? Yeah, it does, I think. I mean, um, he, he has written it um, in the midst of the pandemic, and he writes about this in the book as well, and also with Black Lives Matter uh, on the streets uh, outside uh, his apartment, I think. Um, and so it is a call to arms. Um, I think it's an urgent book, and it is uh, really important that we read books like this um, with, I mean, there are various challenges which, which face us at the moment, but this, the climate emergency hasn't gone away. Mm-hmm. Sujit, many, many thanks for joining us. Thank you.
that is all we have time for this week. Our thanks go to Mary Norris and Sujit Sivasundaram. Thank you for listening to this episode of the TLS podcast produced by Sophia Franklin. We'll be back next week, but for now, from Lucy Dallas and from me, goodbye. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.